So instead of, of normally singing or singing like we normally do, I'm just going to start tonight. And then we're going to sing all together at the end. Um, because tonight's, it's just an interesting passage. Now, the scripture is uh, in multiple places around you. It's going to show up behind me. Um, <laughs> is something over there? There was a bird? Is there a bird in here? Oh, that would be awesome. Okay, I'll stop then. Um, the scripture is going to be in multiple places. It's going to show up behind me. Uh, the piece of paper that was on your chair, it's there. The Bible's around you, it's there. And we even have it on a website if you prefer to go all techno. But that's kind of stupid sounding, so please don't remember that, okay? Uh, no. kind of authorities now both of these were typically both religious and political some of them had more politics to them some of them had more religious aspects to it so i'm going to kind of do it in a, in a spectrum here the most political with multiple king but that's okay. Um, oh, no, it's not okay because Eric is Johnny on the spot, or in this case, Eric on the spot. Look at that. That's like having a pit crew. I mean, that was fast. I should be in NASCAR with you, Eric. Okay, so you have the Herodians who are the most political. They follow King Herod, and they are all about making sure that Herod stays in political power. You then have a group called the Sadducees. The chief priests come from this group. They are the religious authorities in the sense that they have certain positions. Now, theologically, they are based almost exclusively around the first five books of the Old Testament, which is known as the Torah. They don't say the other books are non-authoritative. They just treat them that way. So it's all about the first five books. You, you have this group of Sadducees. They're really close to the Herodians. And they have a decent amount of political power because they are the chief priests. They are the priests. They're people in authority. You now have this group called the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, they love the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. But they kind of accept all the rest of it and go with that. And their whole mindset is they are the popular religious authorities of the day. Uh, they have authority, but it's authority that's given to them from the people saying, oh, wow, we really, really respect these people. So think of the Sadducees realistically as the Pope. Okay, this is entrenched power versus uh, the Pharisees as Billy Graham. That's, you know, he doesn't have power from position. He has power from influence. The Pharisees, on a whole, have the theology that is closest to Jesus. Jesus was probably not a Pharisee, but most of his theology lines up with them. Their biggest thing is Israel is not in power anymore, uh, and Rome is, is persecuting and over us because we have not followed God fully. There are 613 laws listed in the Old Testament, and the Pharisees' mindset is when we follow these laws perfectly, then uh, God will kick the Romans out. I told you a story last week. There's a tradition that the Pharisees were known, of the, uh, known as the men of the bruised head because uh, if they were walking down the street and they saw a woman, they would turn their head and then they would run into a pole. Uh, I mean, it's that type of mindset of it is 
perfection. And then you have the Essenes over here. Okay, the Essenes basically said everything is going to hell in a handbasket. And therefore, all the rest of you, we don't want anything to do with you whatsoever. And so we pull out of the world. Okay, if there is a such thing as Jewish Amish, that would be the Essenes. Okay, they didn't drive in little buggies. They didn't have black hats, but they pulled out and they went into the desert. If you've ever heard of a little thing called the Dead Sea Scrolls, these came about because of the Essenes. The Dead Sea Scrolls come from a place called Qumran. Qumran was an Essene community. And Jesus has a lot in common with the Essenes also. Jesus talks about being of the world but not uh, not in the world. Excuse me, in the world but not of the world. Uh, Essenes would basically say we're not of the world and we are not in the world. So they're similar. Okay, so back to the scripture. Then the Sadducees who say there is no, no resurrection. Very easy way to remember this is to go, oh, They're Sadducees. They're just so sad, you see. Yeah, I know it's stupid, but it it helps me remember. Why were they sad? Because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Uh, Came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us. Moses, interesting, first five books of the Bible. That's why they would quote Moses. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Does that sound freaky to anybody yet? Okay. We're going to talk about that. It's a fascinating concept. Now there were seven Brothers, the first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Uh, Since the seven were married to her, Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said "I said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. So, guys, let's talk about this for just a little bit, okay? The story that Jesus tells is basically this. There's a man and a woman. Whoops. Yay. And and they get married. And let's just assume they have a wonderful, loving relationship. And they spend all their time together. And they run through through fields full of daisies. And birds come beside them and sing. And then he dies. And then a path begins to happen. She goes through all of the brothers, so many so that I ran out of different stick figures and had to use the same one over and over and over again. Now, does anybody have a question that pops in their mind here? She's what? She's a black widow. Pete said poison. I'm thinking Jesus could have ended this argument just by saying, where were the police? Now, I typically don't blame the woman. This could have been that these guys were incredibly poor in incredibly poor health. It could have been genetics. There were seven brothers here. I don't know what it is. But what I know is, is if a woman goes through seven men, I'm going to begin to suspect, suspect something. But here's what I want you to talk about. This is a concept that is very, very foreign to us. It's called Leverite marriage. 
Here's the verse of scripture that comes from the Old Testament. It says, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. What is the duty of a brother-in-law to her? Is what? To continue his line, which is a really nice way of saying to get her pregnant. Yeah. It's called Leverite marriage, which is a concept that is incredibly foreign to us. Yes, ma'am. Leverite. Basically, leverite. Um, and it is a way of taking care of, of, of women in the Old Testament. Now, you probably know enough about the ancient Near East to know that the, the, the worth of a woman was not a great deal. Some people say that a woman was typically worth about as much as a donkey. Uh, to be completely honest, it's the same back then as it is now. There are certain women that are just normal, and, and, and they're different from women who come from very powerful families. Okay? The king's daughter was not worth the price of a donkey. She was treated very well. But on a whole, most women could not work. They, they could not support themselves. They were dependent upon their family or they were dependent upon their new family when they got married. Some people will look at the Bible and go, oh, it's so demeaning to women. But when you really read it and you look at the standards of the day, God is again and again and again protecting the weak. It's what he does. And ladies, I know you are not weak. Okay, you, If you know my family, you know my wife is the more intelligent. She is the, the, the more emotionally strong. She is the better of the two of us. I am not saying you are weak. But realistically in the ancient Near East... Women were on the margins of society. They could be abused. could be taken advantage of. But if you read the Old Testament, again and again, God is starting a path to treat women as though they were created in His image because they are created in His image. It actually begins with the concept of divorce, which we've talked about before. Because before God says, if you split from your wife, give her a certificate of divorce, what would happen would be that if if I dismissed, and literally I could dismiss my wife, some rabbi said, say you could dismiss your wife uh, for her burning your food, burning your toast. But if I dismissed my wife, she would technically still be my property. So she couldn't go and be wed to somebody else and, and, and have security there. She would be my property, but I wasn't taking care of it at all. So God said, that's not fair. That is not right. I will not have that done. Give her a certificate of divorce so she at least is free to go and marry someone else and have a family that she is a part of. Uh, Now people abuse it. To be honest, by the time of Jesus, people abused it. But when God started it, he's like, I don't want this to happen. But if it's going to happen at all, I at least want the woman to be taken care of. Leverite marriage was a way of taking care of a woman. Let's go back to that, that photo again. When the first husband dies, if there's not someone there, she is, and ladies, I do not feel this way about you. I'm just saying what, how you would have been viewed at that time. Used goods. You, you would not have a, an ability to work. Most places you would not have been able to work at all. But even if you could work, your, your value would be next to nothing. And, and if you are used goods, you're not going to get married. And that really was your hope at that time. 
So what God said was here was that if you, your husband died, his brother was literally to take you as his wife. And his first job was to get you pregnant so that you would have a child that would bear your first husband's name so that his name would continue. But it was also a way of taking care of you. It was protection. I know it sounds weird to us, but that's because we live in an age where these freedoms have finally come about. I mean, we're still not perfect, but we're much better than they were then in regards to how women were treated. I mean, you've heard the rule of thumb before. Some people suggest that the rule of thumb was uh, you could beat your wife with a stick that was as big as your thumb. If you tried to pull that now with a judge, they would laugh at you while they were locking you in jail. God was protecting ladies when he came up with this, this process. But the Sadducees, they were using a law that God had set up to protect the weak as a way to try and trick Jesus. What I love about Jesus is the way he always takes somebody's trick and twists it around. What I hate about Jesus is the fact that he takes my tricks and he twists them back around on me. I don't know if anybody else in the room has done this. I'm sure you never have. But in my life, I have made one or two bargains with God. I wasn't raised in church, as most of you know. Uh, What you don't know is I played baseball up until I was about 16, from uh, the age of probably 6 until 16. And the only reason I quit playing baseball when I was 16 was I found out that I could officiate uh, baseball games, I could be an umpire, and I got paid money for that. So I could play baseball for free, actually not for free, I was paying somebody else, or I could officiate, and I got to hang out with all my friends, and I got paid money to do it. I did it uh, all the way through. My last one was while I was in seminary when I started umpiring games for some people that were in the youth ministry I was leading, and I realized that was a no-win situation for me. Uh, So I stopped them. But I started officiating. What I can tell you is when I was 13 and playing baseball, I made all-stars several times. And the reason I made all-stars was because if it was an impossible catch, I could make it. I have no earthly idea why. It was so much easier for me to run after a ball and catch it if I was diving. And the great thing is, that's all anybody would remember was Robert made this incredible catch. What they didn't remember was, for some reason, if you hit the ball right at me. And I didn't have to move and I could just think about it. My mind just started going... And if I had to just stand here, I would drop the ball almost half the time. And when I say drop the ball, I mean, it, yeah, literally put my hand up and I'm just shaking because I'm nervous now. And, it, and you'd see it roll down. I made catches where I ran and dove over the other outfielder, okay? And almost every time the ball was hit straight at me, there was enough time to where I would start making deals with God. I mean, I wasn't even a Christian. I'd be like, God, if you let me catch this ball, I'm going to any church I can find this Sunday. I don't even know where the closest church is. None of you have ever done that, I know. I, I have almost certainty that nobody else in the room has ever made a deal with God. And see, the problem is, is that the Sadducees were trying to trick Jesus and he twisted back on him, but he still does that today. 
I love, I love when Mark Twain says, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that confuse me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand. See, when Jesus starts to convict me of something that he's saying, hey, I want you to do this, I can almost always twist it into some theological argument that I don't completely understand and be like, well, you know, Jesus, what is this? And so it's more fun to talk about these things that may be this way or this way rather than dealing with the specific of love your neighbor when my neighbor is an obnoxious person who's keeping me up at 2 a.m. in the morning. I would rather try and negotiate with Jesus, but he always brings it back home. And he did the same thing here, okay? They're trying to trick him. Whoops, there we go. They're trying to trick him, and and he doesn't fall into their theological argument. What he does is he takes their theology and brings it back to their lives. He does it all the time. So let's talk about that. Jesus said this before he even answered their argument. He said, are you not in error? Now, why would they be in error? Because they do not know the scriptures of the power of God, which is ironic because these would be the people who knew the most scripture of anyone there. To be a Sadducee, they would have at least, at least memorized the Torah. In other words, the first five books of the Old Testament, which was not the Old Testament then, because there was no New Testament. The first five books of the Testament, (laughs) they would have had memorized. And he's saying you don't know it. Yes. Franklin, excuse me, not Franklin, Billy Graham actually says that his wife, Ruth Graham, he met her because someone said, hey, we have this woman in our church who has all of the Psalms memorized and not just memorized where she can say them, but you can say, hey, can you quote me verse, or, or Psalm 139, verse 13? And she'll go, whoa, and quote it. Yeah, she does. <laughs> That's how she memorizes. She's like accessing. <laughs> they would have had the first five books of, of the Old Testament memorized. But he's saying, you do not know it because there is a difference between knowing scripture and knowing scripture i've I've run into many people who can tell me lots of things in the bible who do not live out a single thing there's a wonderful story and it's it's purely fictitious but there's this great story of of this this um this bishop coming over from the old world to the new world. And on the journey, they stop at this island. And in this island, there is a very famous hermit. This hermit has been, is known throughout the world. And the bishop goes, I would like to stop and meet this hermit. And they say, well, that's great. We need to take on supplies. And, and so while they're taking on supplies, the bishop goes out and he goes to where the hermit is staying. And the hermit is staying in this cave. And, and the bishop goes, uh, oh, oh, wonderful hermit, I, I'm just honored to be able to meet you. And the hermit says, no, it is my honor because you are a man of great learning. And, and I am just so honored that you would be here so that I can, can learn from you. And that threw the bishop off completely because the bishop was sure the hermit was the man of learning what else would you do if you were staying in a cave but study the scriptures over and over and over and and so the bishop thinks "Ah, i'm just not understanding this properly he understands and he goes ah master hermit please let's discuss together uh the lord's prayer because i would love to hear your insight from all the reading you have done uh concerning the lord's prayer and the hermit goes oh that'd be wonderful i would love to learn the lord's prayer I would love to learn. Would you please teach me the Lord's Prayer? If the Lord has prayed it, I would love to know this. 
And the bishop's dumbfounded. Because surely this hermit, who's supposed to be a great follower of God, has studied the Lord's Prayer. And he thinks, well, he probably just knows it by a different phrase. I'll talk to him about the Beatitudes. Now, the Beatitudes are this, uh, this list of, of uh, part of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preaches. It's in Matthew, if I remember right, the sixth chapter. Um, and he is going to talk about these Beatitudes, which literally means the blessed, the be, be happy ones. Um, and he goes, well, please talk to me about your understanding of the Beatitudes. And, and the hermit goes, oh, oh, please teach me about the Beatitudes. I would love to hear what our Lord says about what, what is necessary for us to be happy. Please teach me about that. And the bishop is just floored at this point. Because he suddenly realizes that obviously everything he's heard about this hermit is just completely wrong. This cannot be a great follower of Christ because he doesn't know anything that Jesus has said past what Jesus said on on the two greatest commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. It seems to be the only thing the hermit knows and the bishop is just flabbergasted. So he finally just says, the Lord be with you, brother, and he, he leaves after just spending about 40 minutes with the hermit. And he goes back to the boat and uh, the captain of the boat says, says, oh, Bishop, we've got plenty of time. You can still stay with the hermit. He's like, no, it's just a waste. It's just a complete waste of time. So he stays there uh, the the whole time. And uh, and they finally fill up and they're, they're pulling out. And as they're pulling out, they get just about a half mile away from the shore. And someone shouts, there's a man. There's a man. Well, that. Of course, there's there's men all over the place. And uh, the bishop looks up to find out what's going on. And it's the hermit walking across the water towards the boat. And the hermit gets up to the boat and he goes, Master Bishop, uh, I, I, I just wish so much that you would teach me the Lord's Prayer because if the Lord had prayed it, I want to know it. And the bishop finally falls down and he understands and he says, I am so sorry because while I have uh, read greatly about Jesus, you know him greatly. See, the Sadducees, they knew the word of God, but they had not lived out the word of God in their lives. It, it was not just a theological argument. They were concerned with their power. They were not testing Jesus to find out if this theology, this theology was true. They were testing Jesus because he was a threat to their power. And so often we still do the same thing in church. And most of you know that I, I care greatly about education. I'm in the midst of some education myself. I am in the midst of, of working on my dissertation. But to be completely honest, whether or not I'm a good pastor has nothing to do with the education. It has everything to do with whether or not I help you to follow Jesus more closely. I could be the worst preacher on the face of the planet. And please don't say I'm close, okay? <laughs> but if I was the worst preacher on the face of the planet, <laughs> beats. Over there going, no, which is making me think he's thinking, yes. <laughs> I'm, I know, I just threw you under the bus. I'm sorry, buddy. <laughs> but if I was the worst preacher on the face of the planet and you went out of here every night and you lived out the first and the second greatest commandment in such a way that people went, surely there is a God because Crystal loves her neighbor as herself, then it really doesn't matter how good my preaching is. Case in point. Okay, the 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 bouncy castle outside right now, which is probably being used by some stranger who's just walked by <laughs> and go, wow, there's a bouncy castle. Because <laughs> let's face it, I would do it in a second. 
easier to get forgiveness than permission. But, guys, the whole reason that happens is because the leadership team, the people that you have said we want them leading us, said, when I said, hey, we have access to this, they thought, well, let's do this for the least of these. Which is why people came yesterday and they loved on these kids to the point that Jody today was like, you know if we go back next year, they're just going to swarm. Because what matters is that what we know of Scripture, we use. And we're transformed by it. Whereas the Sadducees knew stuff and then, well, realistically, they were more concerned with the Scripture going through their worldview than they were uh, with their worldview being shaped by the Scripture. Because there are references in the Old Testament that deal with, with the supernatural. I'll be completely honest and say the first five books of the Old Testament are the least supernatural of, of the Bible if you exclude creation. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean there's no supernatural. Okay, God, Abraham meets with God and two angels. Okay, It's supernatural, but it's not as supernatural as other elements. But they excluded that. There's discussion of elements at that time. And Jesus even points out where God is the God of the resurrection when he says, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Am. Present tense. Not I was. They were dead. You know, they're dead now. They're dust. I am. Jesus says they do not know the scriptures. Not because they don't know the scriptures. (laughs) but because the Scriptures don't live in their lives. So at that point, they really don't know the Scriptures. So, go away from the temptation if you are a Christian. If you're not a Christian, it's still a temptation. Go away from the temptation of thinking that Christianity is about how much Bible you memorize, about how much Bible you read, about how much Bible you know. That stuff's important. It really is. Okay, It is important to study the Scripture. There's a reason we're starting at least two small groups with no other purpose than to read through the New Testament in eight weeks. But what's important about it is not the head knowledge. It's about it getting into your life and infecting you like a virus. See, that's the thing about Jesus is he does infect us. He won't leave well enough alone. If you really read the words of Jesus, what you're going to find is Jesus is nosy. He likes to put his nose into all these different elements of your life. He doesn't want to just come into your life and make you into a nice person who goes to church. He wants to come into your life and to change you to be more and more and more like him. And Jesus loved to the point that it cost him his life. The Bible's a great, wonderful book, but it's not about how much you have intellectually learned about it. It's not about how many theories you, you know. Those are good. Th- discussing theology is really good, but if it doesn't affect your life, it's not what Jesus wanted. I read some really deep theology, and a couple of these theologians would have a hard time calling themselves Christians. They have wonderful thoughts, but when they pray, if you were to ask them who they were praying to, one of them would say, I don't know. That's not what Jesus was calling for. Is the, the quote on the front of your bulletin? It's kind of redundant, but it makes perfect sense. The Christian life 
is about following Christ. It's about us living out God's word in such a way that we follow him. See, he, he says he's not the God of the living, excuse me, not the dead, but of the living. And the problem is sometimes those of us who f- say we are followers of Christ, the reality is we're dead. <laughs> I've been into a few churches before where you walk in there and you're like, wow, that's a worship service. Yay. <laughs> and there's nothing alive about it. And I've walked into some some places before where the preaching was lousy and there was life. Pam and I were a part of a church in Texas with possibly the worst preacher I've ever been under. Uh, guy's name's Frank. Probably the best pastor I've ever been under. He's an incredible pastor. He couldn't preach worth a lick. He would use these illustrations and he was trying to connect with, with the group there. And we, the, uh, one of the deacons, one of the people in leadership was a former Air Force colonel. And he would try to use these illustrations that would, would connect with this Air Force colonel. And he started talking about these planes that were F-16s and how they would take off from a, an aircraft carrier. And anybody who knows anything at all about airplanes, you should be going, what in the world is that right now? Why? Yeah, F-16s don't take off aircraft carriers. And I'm going. (laughs) And I'm looking at the the deacon and he's just like this. And I thought that's going to be driving him absolutely nuts. And I talked to him afterwards and he's like, oh, yeah, Frank doesn't know anything about planes. But he sure is a good pastor. And, you know, he was. Because the little bit of scripture he got right, that church lived out. This little bitty church of like 60 people. 60 people were like, hey, we want to make sure our teenagers are taken care of. So 60 people, that's just a little bit more than we are, okay? We're like, we're going to hire a youth minister in addition to to a pastor because we want to make sure the teenagers are taken care of. And then they were like, yeah, we will help you do this. I was the youth minister, okay? And it was like, hey, yeah, you live in a city of 150 people now and all the teenagers are drunk and everything else. Why? Because when you live in a city of 150 people, realistically, there is nothing to do. (laughs) And they're like, if you open the doors of the church, everybody will be here. And they were right. They lived out their faith because this pastor helped them to follow Christ. And it was one of the most living churches I've ever been a part of. And I would put this alongside. I'd put tapestry alongside it. Because I believe you show your life. See the point of Christianity. Is not that we know the right things. It is not that we have orthodox belief. Though that is important. It is important that we believe the right things. But they should direct us to live the right things. We have orthodox belief, right thinking, so that we can have orthopraxy, right living. Our right living doesn't save us, but it shows that we have been saved. And that happens by us being followers of Christ. So here's my question. Bless you. Are you living? See, I joked about the Sadducees being so sad because they don't believe in the resurrection, so they're just so Sadducee, which is just fun to say over and over and over again. And you can also say the Pharisees were just not fair, you see. It's fun, but the realism is this. They were very religious. 
But there was no life. Religion should help you to live. But if there's no life that happens out of it, it's just meaningless action. When you come here on a Sunday night, when we sing to this God who is worthy, does He invade your life in such a way that you find yourself living out life throughout the week? His life. If you read the next passage of Scripture, He's going to talk about loving God and loving others. That doesn't mean you get it right all the time. Sometimes for me, it doesn't mean I get it right 10% of the time. But it does mean he weasels his way into me a little more all the time. So are you living? Because if you're not living, well, we need to remember that because of the resurrection, God is the God of the living, not the dead. If you're not living, is he your God? So before I end, does anybody have anything that needs to be added? Any questions? I did not talk about some of the specifics here because I figured we'd go this direction. Anything? Okay. Then here's my... I'm sorry, I'll pause longer. It's okay. All right, so next time, Aaron, what you should be like is, hey, I have something to say. Give me a second. Wow, that sounded mean, didn't it? <laughs> I did not mean for that. Just go, go for it, Aaron. Why I think our church is alive? Well, you were there yesterday. No, I wasn't. Oh, you weren't? Wow. I'm... I was going to those of you who were there yesterday, we were playing with kids who are truthfully are on the on the, the margins of society. Can you give it some examples of life? Yeah. Because it's real easy for us to just stick around people like ourselves. Suddenly a lot harder to uh, to be a part of anybody who wants to separate the margins when you know them. Um, Jan right now, I'm going to use you if you don't mind. Okay. And I think you know what I'm going to bring up. Uh, Jan calls me this week because, uh, two weeks ago, no, I know, but I mean, was it two weeks ago? Yeah. Two weeks ago she said, Hey, I have these neighbors and, uh, their kids don't have enough beds. And so it's like, can we figure out a way to get beds? And that evening within 15 minutes of her saying, can we figure out a way to get enough beds? Suddenly there were enough beds taken care of. Boom. No questions asked. And actually, it had already kind of been decided by the leadership team um, unofficially of if there are not enough beds, then we're going we're gonna to buy the beds, which is a big deal for us because we don't have a lot of money as a church. Um, and so beds are taken care of. And then this week she calls me and she's like, hey, Robert, I haven't called you back on the beds yet because what I've discovered is they need double beds because the kids are afraid to sleep in the basement. They're 10 kids. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, and they're afraid to sleep in the basement. Uh, I can't say I blame them. Don't know their basement, but I'm not a big fan of sleeping in basements. Um, and so she was like, so we're going to have to work that out. Um, and I'll figure that out. But now I'm trying to deal with a chicken that's being starved. <laughs> Why? Because Jan is concerned. I know. it's. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> 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 
Guy, guys, I told you to worry about her, okay? <laughs> Life. Because what's happening is these are her neighbors and she could just be like, well, I was a good neighbor and I, I met them. I mean, she, she tracked down an interpreter to be able to talk with her neighbors. Most people would be like, oh, that's enough. The problem is, is Jesus gets in, in Jan's life and she me- or he messes everything up. That's what life looks like if you think about it. Most things that are truly living are really, really messy. Most things that are dead are nice and organized. You look at a human body when it's living, if you, if you look at it and you cut it open, that's messy. If it's dead and you cut it open, it's not very messy at all. I know, that's a weird, I should not have picked that as an illustration. <laughs> Sometimes I should just shut up. Does that help? College students, they're all around you, okay? All of these acts of life. When there's sacrifice involved, it's an act of life. When you put somebody before you, that is an act of life. When you do the acts of Jesus, it almost always involves you sacrificing and you putting someone else before you. Those are acts of life. Yes, ma'am. I I think you're right. And I think that comes out of, Jan, I think that comes out of us focusing on Scripture and trying to live it out. Okay, if you look at how much Scripture we go through, I feel like I'm just bragging about tapestry, which is not typical. But you should have noticed a lot of Scripture tonight. Okay, that should change your lives. That's the way it works. It's not just works and, and no Scripture. It is... Acts of life, a.e. what some people would call works, which I think is kind of funny because when people talk about uh, faith versus works, they usually mean church activity. Jesus was not very religious. Okay? He, he did a lot of decently re- religious activity for his time, but he was by no means the most religious person of his time. It's just when he went to the temple to worship, that ended up in him healing people. We study the Bible so that we then have faith in Christ so that we then live out the life of Christ. They work together. Okay. Anybody else? All right. Then this is what I'm going to encourage you to do. Next week we are going to talk about loving the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And we are going to talk about loving your neighbor as yourself. All of the commandments, 613 of them, summarized in two. Jesus is really good like that, yeah. <laughs> I want to encourage you to try and live it out this week. Not in some wimpy, unsacrificial way, but in a way that costs you. To the two commandments. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, all, all your mind, all your strength, and all your soul. And to love your neighbor as yourself. And here's my, my hint. When you think something is going to cost you a little bit, you're probably on the right track of following Jesus. When you think it's probably not going to cost you anything, i.e. time, energy, money, sweat, tears. If it's not going to cost you anything, it's probably not what Jesus would do. He's a pain that way. But he's worth living for. And more importantly, he's worth living with. So let's pray and let's sing to the one who's worthy, okay? Pray with me, please. Father... Help us to be people of life. 
Because you are the resurrection and the life. And because we believe in you, help us to live. Amen. Guys, if you need someone to pray with, I'll be in the back. Otherwise, let's sing.